The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 126 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and to get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. As you know, we've been highlighting the talent shortage in the cybersecurity space here at Task Force 7, and we did it once again last week, folks. We had President of Cyber Sourcing and Task Force 7 Advisor, Jay Vanderworken, on the show last week. Jay gave his opinion on whether the unprecedented jobs forecast for the United States in the United States cybersecurity market is accurate, and what we should do about the cybersecurity workforce shortage in the U.S. Jay also opined on whether or not he thinks that people are leaving the cybersecurity industry faster than employers are attracting new talent. And whether or not the inability for companies to staff cybersecurity positions on a mass scale is contributing to a threat to the national security of the United States. That and much, much more, there's something for everybody on episode number 125 of Task Force 7 Radio. So if you missed last week's episode, don't sweat it. Just go to your favorite playback medium and you can catch it anytime right at the top of the TF7 Radio episode library. That's our people leaving cybersecurity jobs faster than the industry can attract new talent on last week's episode. That's episode number 125 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to the episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is a most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our news section as well where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news on Task Force 7 Radio. We're on at least 11 different playback mediums now. We've made it easy to find them all. Just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage and you You'll see our entire selection of playback mediums, and most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 Radio website, which is the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. So check us out, folks, at www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. 
So we have another great show for you this week. We have former Deputy Assistant Director of the United States Secret Service and a VP in the financial sector, Dr. Ron Layton. Ron is responsible for cyber fusion and asset protection, corporate investigations, and cyber incident management at a major financial institution. Prior to his private sector career, Ron was a Deputy Assistant Director of the United States Secret Service, Office of Protective Operations, as well as Deputy Assistant Director of the Strategic Intelligence and Information Directorate. He was also the first presidentially appointed White House technology liaison, responsible for the daily operations and long-term strategy for information systems provided to the President of the United States during the Obama administration. Ron was one of the Presidential Protective Division counter-assault teams. He commanded counter-assault teams in Iraq and Afghanistan in direct support of the President, was Deputy Director of the National Security Cyber Division of DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, and oversaw the Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force. Prior to his appointment with the Secret Service, Dr. Layton worked as an electrical engineer, writing software in automation and controls industry. In addition, he's acted, he's been a, an adjunct professor of physics and mathematics in the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Layton holds a PhD in electrical engineering and a PhD in business administration. It's my pleasure to introduce former Deputy Assistant Director of the United States Secret Service, and VP in the financial sector, and my personal friend, Mr. Ron, Dr. Ron Layton. He always busts my chops, man, if I forget the, the doctor. I got to tell you, and there's an old Secret Service uh, you know, folklore, Ron, that you've got uh, a couple different doctor degrees. I mean, is that true? So I just want to say hello to the listeners. And Andy, listen, it's a pleasure to be with you here on Task Force Radio. I am very appreciative of the just the format that you guys have. It's you guys keep it light, and uh, it provides the ability to you know get fairly probative into questions that make sense to the audience, but also to keep it light in a fun format. And so, thank you very much. But we yeah, you know, we appreciate it, man. Thanks for coming on. Look, you're you're a busy man. You've been crushing it in the private sector. You had an ex- extremely distinguished Secret Service career. I don't know if you, you know, knows we don't spend a ton of time talking about it, but man, I, I followed your career, looked up to you as you were navigating the ranks to do some really cool groundbreaking things in the agency's history. And I'm, I'm hoping we can you know, touch on a little bit of that here in uh, the first segment. Um, but if you don't mind, man, just share with the audience a little bit about, you know, your journey um, and how you got to the secret service. Yeah. So I think uh, the thing that, uh, I don't know if it's different. It's slightly a little different maybe, but let's go into this a little bit. There's a difference between a guy who shows up in the Secret Service and decides this thing called cyber technology is a cool thing. I'm going to take some classes and maybe get into some of the great programs and learn about Bicep and Nitro, those kinds of courses. And those are the courses that teach you computer fundamentals and things like network intrusions, those kinds of things. But that's, that's today. That's in current day. And our people are I say, I got to remember, I'm retired. The Secret Service <laughs> personnel are awesome. But That's when right. I got into the Secret Service, and I've only been gone about 18 months or so, I showed up with a degree in systems control and electrical engineering. So when I showed up at the Secret Service, I was somebody who was a little skeptical from the standpoint of saying, hey, does a dude with an electrical engineering degree, like how do you fit in law enforcement? And I remember, you know, being recruited and having a, a conversation with uh, uh, a guy that I came to, to really respect and admire, God rest his soul, Chuck Davis, who said, yeah, you're an engineer, but you've also got a little bit of a law enforcement background. 
But the point is to speak to your engineering kind of mentality. Think about, think about all the technology that's involved that you don't see with moving a president from point A to point B. And as I started to think about it, I thought it would be fascinating because there's all these behind the scenes things. Um, I know that we're going to talk about this thing called convergence, but there are all these behind the scenes things that are highly sophisticated, highly technical and demand uh, an engineering skill set and, and guys that are, you know, kind of like the geeky side like me, but also understand that there is a significant piece of operations and keeping somebody safe that has everything to do with cyber and digital. So that's, that's the postage stamp version. Yeah, man, I, I love it. And, you know, man, the last time I saw you, man, down at Sinet, you had the, the Hall of Fame ring on your finger from college. You've just been inducted. Congratulations. But, you know, you, you're also uh, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. You're not just a techie carrying the old, uh, you know, forensics, you know, briefcase, right? You're, you're, you're a tactical guy. You know, tell us a little bit about how you started. Your, what was your first assignment? So my first assignment was in the Philadelphia field office. Uh, I was there for about seven years. And, you know, I got to tell you, the early times in the Secret Service where, you know, at least for me, I'm out working, you know, as we would say in the service, trying to turn deals. You're out working your cases and you're trying to um, develop your informants, knock on door, uh, do everything that an agent should do in the first uh, piece of his or her career. So for me, it was a lot of uh, UC assignments, a lot of turning deals. It was a lot of buying counterfeit money, a lot of buying narcotics, a lot of that kind of stuff. And I can remember as the service got into, if you remember, we, we started to do, you know, you look at the, it, this is all a progression, like, right? So we get into this thing called access device fraud, which was, back then it was credit cards. But then, you know, one of the technological kind of entrees or open doors was this thing called cell phones, right? And those were the big brick phones. And I can remember somebody asking me, I'm young in the office, three, four years on the job. Hey, what's this code here? Now I knew from my engineering education, that's a hexadecimal code, right? So I can remember converting hex into real numbers that people can understand. And that was the first time where I ended up being once I was on the job, and this is before you get to the details saying, hey, look, this ability to use your science or engineering education, this can really take you far if you're interested in this kind of stuff. And this is before, you know, really the beginning of XAP or any of that other kind of stuff. But to me, to have a guy who, who knows operations and street work start to understand or at least explain to other people what hexadecimal is, this is the first kind of indication that there's a, 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 an ability of a street guy and a techie guy, what would later be considered a cyber guy or an IT guy, to kind of come together into one guy. And that's one of those platforms of a convergence model. That's the way I look at it now. Man, I love it. So, so tell me a little bit about your time as deputy director. I mean, a national, in NCSD. I mean, that, that, that's a big role. Tell, tell the audience about what that is um, and, and kind of what you learned from that. Yeah, so here's the deal about that job, though. Um, uh, I, I was coming out of the criminal division. And in that division, that's where, you, of course, you get the exposure to the guys that are doing the criminal cases for um, cyber intrusion, cyber crime, that kind of stuff. Now, here's the thing, Andy, about that job. 
this is very quickly after 9-11. There's this thing called the Department of Homeland Security that stands up. Yeah. And I was fortunate enough to get a job over there as a deputy director in the National Cybersecurity Division for Law Enforcement and Intelligence. The big, big deal about this job is that if you can remember before 9-11, on one side, you've got the intelligence officers. They're interested in a behavioral mosaic. Like, what does one guy have to do with another guy have to do with another guy? And they're a little less interested in actually going to court and putting handcuffs on people. That's what the cops do. So now, all of a sudden, I've got the merger of the two groups. I've got the intelligence folks that are working for me, and I've got the cops that are working for me. And so this is the first time that the intel guys can look over at the cops and go, hey, look, here's what we got. And the cops can go, hey, thank you very much. And so now you start to see a melding of cultures. Uh, and, and culture in this business is as important as anything else to move the ball forward, to continue to protect our great nation. But the point is, that's the first job where I saw the heavy, heavy influence of cyber but the underlying personality traits that cops bring to the game versus what the intel folks bring to the game, unifying those two for the betterment of the country. It was a great, great job. And um, I was very, very fortunate to be in a position to be able to access that job as a, as a fairly young supervisor. Man, I got to tell you, that, that was – people ask me about why I left law enforcement and Secret Service. It wasn't because I was unhappy. It was because – I had jumped into that game where criminal investigations became more of an intelligence gathering mission and we were leveraging intelligence in a way that was unique to be able to put handcuffs on people. And man, the, 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 you know, the byproduct of those cultures coming together um, has created so a big difference in, in, in how we've been able to penetrate and start to slowly dismantle criminal groups and people will have the people will never understand. So the work that you were doing there set the stage for a lot of the large scale data breach investigations that you see in the news now that lead to arrests because of that convergence. I mean, it can't understate the value of the work that you, you, you were doing at that groundbreaking time. You know, and I really appreciate that. So what was it like to be, I mean, look, deputy assistant director, right? I mean, you're at the top, man. You're running and gunning with, with, with the big boys at the agency. Um, tell me a little bit about just what was the day in the life like there compared to when you were a field agent? So here's what happens, and here's what I would tell everybody. Um, it, it took, I didn't get there overnight. As a matter of fact, um, <laughs> there were quite a bit overnights, like 10 supervisory assignments worth of overnights. So I think as a 14 for almost 10 years, uh, I had I had a lot of 14 assignments, and that turned out to be a good thing because fundamentally you're asking me what's it like to be a DAD, but what ends up happening is you bring all of that knowledge from all of those different silos that you worked in by the time that you get to be an executive. And so what would end up happening is if I made a decision, I just didn't think about it from a singular, you know, like singular tiered standpoint. I thought about everything that I had learned along the way and how my one decision would really affect the decisions in the other silos that I thought were, I thought were important. You know, a lot of times an executive will make a decision um, that's just, it's, it's kind of myopic. It's, I don't want to say it's short-sighted, but it is only informed by a fairly limited amount of experience. It's what happens when guys get promoted too quickly. 
because you just don't have the breadth and depth to understand that there's a ripple effect of what you've done. So I tried to bring that as a, as a decision cycle to almost everything that I did, particularly if it had anything to do with intelligence, IT, or cyber. And when it came time to, to promote people, you wanted people who had had an extensive enough variety of assignments where they understood that there were other levers of, um, there were other levers of experience that they should bring into this particular job, not just because it makes them a better decision maker, but it also informs the way that they lead other people. So that's, that's what I thought about that kind of stuff. I love it. And I'm sure there was a ton of self-reflection and, you know, looking at your own personal brand as you took each role and navigated your career. Um, you know, one of the roles that you had that really stands out to me that I'd love to get your, you know, kind of the, the history on was, yeah, people probably don't realize, but you're the first presidentially appointed White House technical liaison of the president of the United States. Tell people what that means and what did you do and how did all that go down? I have to tell you right out of the gate, that was the most fascinating and frustrating job that I had in my <laughs> near 27 years in the Secret Service. And the funny thing is, timing is a very odd thing because when I got that job, I feel like, particularly now that I'm retired, I feel like I got it at a time when I was well-equipped to handle it and there was a lot going on. First of all, it's very easy to lead when the sun's shining. There's nothing going on. We can get into, um, maybe in a little latter part of the show, a fairly extensive conversation about leadership. But I got to tell you, um, here's the genesis of this. In the last administration, the president wants um, a fairly robust set of tools and capabilities on the 18 acres, right? And he wants... He wants, um, he wants it to be led by someone who I believe that was um, coming from the private sector. So he reaches out to um, the head of Facebook. Uh, and, and, and I guess the conversation goes like this. Hey, Zuck, send me your top engineer. Well, that <laughs> top engineer, yeah, just like that. So now look at what I've just said. You are getting the creme of the creme in terms of, in terms of engineering brilliance who shows up and says, Hey, how can I serve my country? Well, the first thing, and I'm just going to, I'm going to, let's just refer to it as a Mr. D since I don't have permission to use his name. So Mr. D shows up and he works on healthcare.gov for a while, uh, takes care of that. And then the president makes a, uh, makes a proposition to him that goes like this. Why don't you stay for a while, serve your country in an unusual way. I will make you the first director of White House Information Technology, and I will give you the equivalent of a three-star general. Well, so by executive order, he does this with Mr. D overnight. But associated, right, it's crazy. Associated with the crazy in a good way, not in a bad way. Associated with that. He says, in, and this is written in the order, you can go online and read it. In order to assist this particular person, there shall be, from the Department of Defense, a White House technical liaison. There shall be, in the form of the DHS and U.S. Secrets White House technical liaison. That turned out to be Ron Layton. That was me. So fundamentally, what that means is that 
I had authority and, and really we were speaking and working directly for the chief of staff when we were doing this. And we ran around that White House and I, I got to tell you, we tackled every technological problem that showed up, everything um, from uh, anti-drone technology to a significant number of foreign threat actors that were trying to exfiltrate uh, information um, from classified spaces on a daily basis. And I ran around with Mr. D for two years and did everything that we could to suppress that activity. And what we did have is that we had um, immediate access to all of the, the clandestine programs that were available. And what we really did was we jumped in and we made them better. Fascinating. Fascinating. Unbelievable opportunity and experience. I love it, man. I can't wait to hear more. But okay, folks, we got to transition to a commercial break here. So hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. And you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number seven, radio.com. I'm going to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. We're really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, former Deputy Assistant Director of the United States Secret Service and VP in the financial sector, Dr. Ron Layton. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., 
Cynet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Cynet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, former Deputy Direct- Assistant Director of the United States Secret Service and a VP in the financial sector, Dr. Ron Layton. Don, I got, Ron, I got to tell you, you know, we're in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution, brother, right? And it's really blurring the lines between physical, digital, even biological um, you know, we're talking AI, IoT, robotics, quantum, and et cetera, right? I mean, how are we, you know, you're a big proponent of convergence, you know, in the models that we run to protect 
critical infrastructure and, you know, obviously the, the president, you know, tell me a little bit about how you're defining convergence and where, where the history of convergence, you know, is. So I, I think it's one of these things, quite frankly, Andy, I think it's one of those things that the, the definition is going to continue to morph a little bit because the definition probably would have been a little different, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And I suspect, to your point, as we have different domains that collide, we're going to see outcomes that some of which we can make some fairly easy predictions over, but some of which we probably can't. Um, what I do see is as these domains collide, physical, cyber, digital, the whole notion of IoT is a highly, highly increased um, vulnerability. And so you've got complexity and vulnerability that I think are proportional quantities, which means as complexity goes up, vulnerability goes up. And, you know, you're only in, in cyber and IT, I think you're only as strong as your, as your weakest link. But, you know, people think that these are just different domains that are smashed together. And it's so much more complex than that. Because for one thing, if, if, um, if I've got, uh, say, a phone, and I'm interacting with a sensor on the road in a self-driving car, well, for one thing, it's not just me talking to that sensor. It's the complexity of being able to exchange data with all of the other devices that are in proximity and maybe not in proximity, but the point is, is that you're weaving threads of information through all of these different domains that will be able to, to be used for really almost near miraculous positive outcomes. But of course, all of this stuff is a two-edged sword. And so um, the, the increased complexity uh, lead to increased vulnerability. One of the questions that I've always struggled with is that how can we as technology professionals wrap your head around this notion? We've become more and more and more advanced, but how can you become more advanced while also becoming more vulnerable? Interesting conundrum, but I think it's true. So, do you, do you to, think to, it's because people don't think about the vulnerable part to the same uh, level of the, the, to defining an advancement, or what do you, what's your take on that? Yeah, my take on it is that an open communication system was really never meant to be secure. That's my take on it. Yeah, and the thing is, people talk about malware, but but that means some bad intention. That guess what? For every person that didn't want that to have to, to happen, somebody wrote that piece of code for it to happen. So the computer's not very smart. It's just doing what you tell it to do. So that's why. And the other thing, too, is the user wants capability. So it's always, uh, particularly as I see in the private sector, it's always this notion of give me more capability, more, more, more. And, of course, the security folks are going, hey, wait a minute. This, the, we need to slow this train down a little bit because of all of the holes in this particular piece of software. Let me give you an example. When I was in school, I wrote the same types of programs any other young engineering student wrote. So I wrote in C or Fortran or machine language, a couple of hundred lines of code, right? I thought I was big time. Guess what? Windows 10 has 50 million lines of code in it. Even if there's a, you know, there's, so there's a lot of speculation about the error rate. 
it's generally estimated to be five or 10%, right? Let's just say, Andy, it's 2%. So in 50 million lines of code, there's 200,000 lines that are buggy. That's why, that's why we have a problem. But uh, let, me, let me touch on, I gotta tell you, I am so happy to have the opportunity to talk to you about where the current state of, of uh, the Secret Service convergence models, where this came from, because as time goes on, people are gonna forget and they're gonna just show up with a tool suite and think this stuff pooped into an existence. So. Um, you want to you want to you want to talk about how how we got from point A to point B? I, I would love to, man. It's, I find it fascinating. Here's what happened in the in the mid to late '90s. An agent walks onto an elevator that the president would later get on, and he sees this thing called a 56k modem. Remember that? Yeah. That modem. <laughs> If you do, but a lot of people won't, right? So that modem is linked to a daggone elevator. So that agent is starting to think like this. What's the influence of that modem on that elevator? And while I may have somebody, you know, you walk on and there's an elevator guy that could run the elevator for you uh, for the advances. Wow, that elevator guy may be able to hit that button and move us up or move us down. But it seems to me that that modem may have something to do with it. That's the actual and that kind of conversation in the mid to late 90s. That's kind of the genesis of where all of this started. So let's fast forward, not so much, but a little bit to like the early 2000s at this place called Carnegie Mellon in my beloved town of Pittsburgh in the CERT. So great secret service place. leaders. Yeah, a great place. The level of talent and research that coming out of there, we leveraged was just awesome. It's awesome, and I certainly don't want it to be forgotten. You talk about the idea factory, right? So now Secret Service had enough foresight to, to say, we're going to put some folks there because uh, we're going to think about and talk about the influence of technology on protectees. So here's how this happens. We got the thought process of what's the technology have to do with that elevator? Let's expand that a little bit. So let's expand it to Carnegie Mellon. There's this thing called Octave. Octave is basically a risk assessment kind of framework. And Octave, as I remember, stands for Operationally Critical Threat Asset and Vulnerability Evaluation. Now, it just so happens that we had really smart guys there, Cornelius Tate being one of them, Dave Acovetti another one. This is in the early 2000s. So what these guys did was they took the Octave framework and they overlaid it on protection, right? So you got Octave, Octave S was uh, for small businesses under 150. Uh, the current iteration is Octave Allegro. Um, I'm gonna put my own name on this because Dave and Cornelius did it, but I might as well. What these guys did was they gave us a version that I'm going to refer to as Octave P. And Octave P stands for protection. And so what they did was they started to consider how technology is gonna influence where protectees go. So fundamentally, you got a protectee that goes into a building. This building is connected to this thing called the, oh, it's called the internet. So the idea is that what internet controlled hardwired devices at that point could have some control or some ability to either help us or hinder us on a protective movement. So things like fire suppression, the HVAC system, maybe if you could shut the elevator down in between floors, 
Um, then you start to get into this notion of network cameras, first network cameras in 1997 by Access Communications with a, with a frame rate of one frame every 17 seconds. I can walk up and stab and kill you and stomp on you five times and you never see it on that camera. Why? Because it's one frame every 17 seconds. But the point is, is that this whole notion of going from, hey, there's that 56K modem. What's that have to do? Let's go to Carnegie Mellon. Let's wrap octave, my term, octave P, around this whole notion of being able to protect these, uh, protect, protect these in these smart buildings. Wait a minute. There's this thing called wireless. Wait a minute. There's this thing called supervisory control and data acquisition. It allows me to close doors. It allows me to function valves back and forth remotely. Think that might have a, you know, think you might be able to influence or protect the movement. So let's, let's, let's go to today, right now. Have you seen Angel Has Fallen? I have. Yeah, I have too. It's a great movie. Uh, former uh, AD Mickey Nelson does a cameo in there. Uh, <laughs> You're kidding me, Eddie. Oh, no, man. Yeah, no, he, he's in the end of the movie. But the reason that I bring up Angel Has Fallen is not because of Mickey. It's because of this. There's a scene at the very end of the movie. Guess what, Andy? It's what we're talking about. It is a blended network intrusion SCADA attack. Because what they do, if you remember that movie or the next time that you see it, watch what they do. They use a computer intrusion to um, uh, what they do is they blow the oxygen ports inside the hospital, ultimately to blow the building up. But that's all. That's a SCADA attack. Yep. And that is exactly what the current CSP program as it relates to our former agency is designed to protect. And that's a very quick history. And the one other thing that I want to hit on in regard to that program and the trajectory of it, how we got from point A to point B, all the way from the 56K modem to Angel has fallen. Here's the other thing, and this is, this is such a crown jewel, is that when other agencies knock on the door of the private sector, what do they do? They knock on the door, they got a shiny gun and badge, and they go, look, here's a subpoena, I want your logs, right? We're gonna go out and try to find a bad guy. Now, I know from my time in the private sector, my short time, that, look, uh, law enforcement is on the list, but you're not first on the list. There's a lot of internal deliberation and quite frankly, a lot of situational awareness and consultation with legal before you call law enforcement folks. But one of the things that I'll tell you, and this is one of those crown jewels that the Secret Service has, the Secret Service, because of this methodology, does not have to show up and say, here's a subpoena, let me see your logs. Because of this program, I can now knock on your door and go, hey, listen, we're from the Secret Service, and we would like to partner in giving you some tools to kind of shore up your own network, show you where the vulnerabilities are. Why would we do this? Because we want to do this to ensure that you've got a safer environment. We're comfortable with taking a protect, protectee here, but you also get a partnership that's not necessarily focused towards a criminal action. It's, fo it's a win-win for the service because of the relationship, but it's also a win-win for that business because now they can say, hey, look, we had a group come in here, show us where some vulnerabilities are, and really help us clean up our act in terms of where, where our, uh, our, uh, our, our back doors are, where our open doors are, what was on the shelf in terms of our technological inventory. And we are a much tighter organization.
as a result of those guys. It is a completely different approach than showing up demanding logs. And that, that, is, that is a crown jewel of um, what this uh, program has been able to produce from the service. It's awesome. Yeah, it, it is. But you know, it's amazing to think of the transformation of the culture that the agency had to go through to get there. Um, you know, you've got, you know, to some extent, you've got, you know, not everybody believes in it, right? It, or did at the time early on, right? Because it was different, right? So anytime you're doing transformation, you've got you to bring the culture with it. And they've done a good job of, of doing that. Tell me a little bit about, you know, your experience with you know, how the culture, you know, transformed to enable that, you know, to, to happen. So I got to tell you, um, and I was able to exercise a lot of this um, with some fairly long sleepless nights associated with it. It's the general category of leadership, right? So leadership typically, at least the way that it's taught, is, you know, you've got a pocket that's transformative leadership, pocket that's transactional leadership. Transactional leadership is just the leadership that says, hey, we're doing fairly smoothly and we need to keep the trains running, keep doing what you're doing. Transformative leadership, which is exactly what we're talking about, is saying, hey, look, something in the environment has changed and we need to transform our behavior, our leadership ability to be able to match um, what it is that's coming. Here's the thing, Andy, as we both know about transformative leadership, it comes with a lot of pain. And it's always problematic because you've got to open the aperture to people who otherwise weren't thinking that same way. They were kind of stuck in the transactional piece of this saying, no, keep doing what you're doing. And if you look at technological advancement, even over the past 10 years, there is no way that any agency could continue to do what it's doing and not consistently evolve to meet the new cyber oriented threats. And you're right. Service did not get there overnight. And I suspect um, the agencies who have not gotten there have paid a price for it. And um, if you allow me to talk a little bit more about just general qualities of leadership and what makes, uh, what contributes to a, a more effective culture rather than a less effective culture, you know, I would tell you, and I would told many of the people that I coached and mentored and, and worked for me, I simply say this, smart people have a high IQ. Effective people have a high EQ, which is emotional intelligence competencies. And so that, that gets me to the whole notion of psychometrics. Uh, do we have time to get into this a little bit? We're going to hit that, I think, in the next segment. I want, I want, to, close out, I want to close out the, uh, the, the benefits of converged models and kind of where you see the future of them going. And then I, then I really want to hit home on the, on the leadership stuff. I, you know, we, we talk about building the next generation of cyber leaders a lot on this show. And uh, I think we're gonna we get a lot we can cover there. So let's hit this. So before we move on to that, what what are the what are the big benefits you're seeing um, in deploying converged models? So the biggest benefit I think are if you, especially in the private sector, convergence if you're doing it right yields efficiency, and so now where it used to cost you X amount of dollars to do this on the physical side. And of course, the physical side is very broad, right? You've got, you know, the protection of people, the protection of facilities, you've got inventory control, like all of that kind of stuff can be very, very expensive. And what ends up happening is the more that you can consolidate and converge, 
number one, it gives you better threat intelligence, but number two, it really, really can cut down on your OPEX or your operating expenses. So, so that's where I see the actual benefit. The benefit, and, and half of the benefit, you know, Ron Layton can see it one way, and the sell is being able to sell it to the C-suite executives. That's the actual sell is being able to say, look, here's where um, it saves you money on the balance sheet. And it, you think that's the big, I mean, obviously, look, that, that is the one thing that I think, and we talk about it here a lot, but as a practitioners, we don't always remember that we are business leaders first, right? And we operate within a business and we need to speak in business terms. Um, you know, and, and dollars and cents is, the, is what the business is, the language of the business, right? So if you can't speak to those, uh, you're really going to be having a hard time making your case. Well, see, most of us are coming from some type of operational environment where, you know, if we carried guns and badges, we're, we're cut a certain way. And that means that we paid less attention to things like budget and expenses, expenses and um, uh, three-year money, which is what we get in the government and, and that kind of planning. But if you're at an executive level, and especially if you're in the private sector, if you don't have any budget or you don't control it properly, you just can't be effective. It's just that simple. So it's really, it's the formation of what a true technological or cyber executive needs to understand in order to be effective. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested to see where this space goes because, you know, the converged models, you know, I think are the future, but at the same time, you know, not every enterprise is up there, right? They're not there operating in a converged model. Um, I'd say it's probably the smaller percentage that are. Um, what, what do you think kind of, what do you think the adoption will be of the converged model going forward? So I think it's quite frankly, I think it's, it's leaders like you and I who uh, you got to be able to articulate, number one, what it is. Number two, what's the benefit? You know, at the end of the day, every seasoned private sector executive is going to say, okay, let's sit down and have a conversation, but it's going to end like this. What's the business case? That's it. You've got to be able to make the business case. And sometimes the business case is going to be, hey, look at what happened with the reputational damage of company X because we did not have a converged model or the models that we had weren't effectively executed because no one listened to the CISO um, or nobody listened to the physical guys. And a lot of times the events that we're talking about are fairly low frequency, high impact. So it could be anything from an active shooter and whatever company didn't have an active shooter uh, program in place, or it could be um, that they didn't pay enough ten- attention to patch systems. They didn't have adequate uh, control of their uh, identification. They didn't have two-factor authentication. I think there's a most recent case of a shooting where one guy was able to steal another guy's uh, ID, make his way into the facility, and start to shoot the place up. So the point is, all of these kinds of things that we're talking about have some solution within convergence models, but somebody has to articulate a business case to ensure that a a low-frequency, high-impact event is listened to. I mean, once those bullets start to fly, I almost want to say it's, it's, it's too late. Oh yeah. Right. For sure. 
Absolutely. You know, and I think it's a bigger of a great point, right? You know, that's where your security awareness and your constant education, uh, because, you know, you may not, you know, you may not have the, the bad experience yourself, but it's happening every day in the news cycle at such a high rate of frequency, whether it's a physical attack or a cyber attack or a converged, you know, physical and cyber attack. At the end of the day, <clears throat> business leaders, board members, they're all hearing about it at such a frequent pace um, that at some point they're, they're kind of go, man, we're not really hearing a lot from our own internal teams, right? Cause it doesn't happen that frequently. Is it really a problem? Do we need to deal with it? How come we're not hearing enough, right? Very interesting stuff. I find that dynamic to be fascinating because to some extent you're competing with the news cycle. Well, you're competing with a news cycle and you know, because the news cycle is ubiquitous and you are not guess who's going to win that one. Right. Yep. So um, there are lots and lots of, of, of um, first of all, harnessing human attention, whether you're talking to a CEO or a line employee is very, is very difficult um, because we're so distracted by many of the things, whether it's a news cycle or it's our phone or it's all of the digital influences that, uh, that have, have really, that have overwhelmed us and we don't even realize it. How many people do you do, are driving down the road and for whatever reason, they can't drive down the road and not pick their phones up. I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. So um, if you expand that to other arenas, um, it's just very hard to, to garner and have humans focused on any one topic for any amount of time. Yeah, I love it. I can't wait to hear about leadership in the next segment. But for right now, we're going to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, former Deputy Assistant Director of the United States Secret Service and a VP in the financial sector, Dr. Ron Layton. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., 
Cynet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Cynet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, former Deputy Assistant Director of the United States Secret Service and VP in the financial sector, Dr. Ron Layton. Ron, you were talking earlier in the last segment, we started to allude on leadership. And I got to tell you, I had some amazing leaders in the Secret Service, um, but obviously not all leaders are created equal and not all situations are, are the same, right? How did managing at all levels in the Secret Service prepare you for a life in leadership in the private sector? So, Andy, I, I have to tell you that, um, you know, as you move up, you think about the leaders just like you did, just like I did. You think about how inspiring 
the amazing leaders in the Secret Service were. And of course, you know, not everybody is going to achieve that level and not every leader is, is going to be an elite level leader. But I think we all looked up to the leaders that we thought were, you know, that we thought were highly thought of uh, and highly informed. And you just say, well, boy, it's a real pleasure and a privilege to work for that particular boss. So what I tried to do personally is I tried to think about what were the characteristics of the leaders that I believed were, you know, the, the higher level, higher functioning you know, elite level leaders. And I kind of boiled it down to two things. And, you know, I think leadership has a lot of complexity. We talked earlier about the difference between transactional leadership and transformative leadership and transformative leadership will get you a lot of arrows in the back. And as long as you realize they're coming, you're better positioned to take them. But in terms of those two, there's two characteristics. I think number one, it is the ability to completely or to have a really good understanding of the particular function that you're, you're managing. So in practical terms, if you're the AD of investigations or you're the head of cyber or you're the head of whatever you are, you actually know that subject matter because you did it. And one of the things that does, it kind of gives you almost an organic or an intrinsic value among your subordinates that you end up saying, the people who work for you go, yeah, that like they know this because I remember or I heard about when they were a young agent, a young practitioner, young whatever. So guys can get into trouble. And I have seen this on a number of occasions where they find themselves leading a group that they have no idea whatsoever about the subject matter because then you kind of have fake it. So when somebody comes to you with a problem, you got to sit there and nod your head like you understand. You have no earthly idea what you're talking about. And people know that, right? So that's characteristic number one, a firm understanding of your subject matter, your context, your content, and and the importance of what you're managing, the importance to the mission. Now, here here's a close 1B. Every leader that I thought was fabulous also had, aside from having a strong kind of grasp on the subject matter, they also were were pretty strong when it came to the soft skills. And, and there's people who think that this kind of stuff is hocus pocus. It's not, you know, it's emotional intelligence competencies and that's a big deal. But Andy, when you merge the two, when you've got a strong leader who understands the, the, the nuts and bolts of whatever it is he or she is managing, and then you overlay that with emotional intelligence competence, you've got really an unbeatable leader who is also very, you know, they're very inspiring. And uh, I got to tell you, so what I tried to do was I tried to model myself in that way. And for even for the jobs that I had that I may be like I had, uh, I had uh, the National Threat Assessment Center and I had never really done that kind of work before and everybody knew it. But what I did do is I dug into that like I dug into a dissertation when I was getting one of my PhDs. And in a couple of months, I really, really, really became immersed in that material so that I could speak. Um, with some authority and I could ask probative questions to the folks that worked for me. And guess what? They really, really appreciated that because when they said, well, here's a boss who was trying to understand us. And I tried to do that with the appropriate amount of soft skills. And so um, to, to form a leader, you need that. And then this whole stuff about soft skills, it's a little bit more complex. So psychometrics is just the ability to measure uh, kind of like a psychological inventory. There are lots of tools to do that. There's 
the um, Thomas Kilman in- instrument. Strength Finders is real big in government and the private sector. My personal favorite is the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And what that really does is it gives you very high return on your investment. So in about two or three hours, you can find out what your particular type indicator is. And one of the things that's important about that is that it'll give you the level of structure that you thrive in. So that last quartile is whether you're a J or a P. So if you're a J, you like a lot of structure. If you're a P, you don't like any structure at all. So to put this into practice, um, during some of the assignments that I had, I was an advanced planner for the uh, Republican National Convention, the Democratic National Convention, the State of the Union. And so what I did was the guys that worked for me, I took the guys that I knew that were J's, like the really strict, like you need to plan this stuff out. That's where they thrive. And I let them do a lot of the advanced work. But guess what? When it came to troubleshooting, I took other personalities that I thought were were non-structured people. That's where they, they thrive in that, in that environment. Those guys were peace. I let them do the troubleshooting. And the truth is, is that the merger of those two together really gave us a superior product. But at the end of the day, the guys that were J's and understood that this is where the, the, their sweet spot was, they really appreciated being able to do that. And the guys that I would say, hey, where can this thing go off track? Those guys that were P's, that was a really big deal. And I think that should be within the province of any executive leader to understand that stuff. And since, you know, we're talking much about cyber here, guess what? The cyber guys, they fall into a, a certain type uh, a personality type as, as, as well. And, and this is all in the literature and in the data. And what ends up happening is you can kind of see and understand once you begin to look, look at leadership this way, you can understand individual motivational levers. And then once you can understand that, you can understand what incentives these people work on. And I heard this a long time ago in the financial sector. You show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. But executive leadership is having a grasp on all that stuff if you're going to truly lead people in an environment where they can thrive. Man, I am a big believer in personality and understanding it and being able to use that to interact with other people, man. It is such a powerful tool. And, you know, look, I, I drive it on, on uh, you know, with my teams. Man. I think it's a such a powerful tool. It's so understated. I think in, in society in general, uh, you start to get these tools the higher you go in your, in your career, right? But, man, if we could start to employ that much younger – in the workforce, I think, man, we would, we would be so much more dynamic, uh, is as a, in general, you know, as a cyber workforce, man, if we could do that, uh, Ron, I, I really appreciate you spending time with task force seven or eight today and coming on the show. Well, listen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity. Um, it's, uh, it's always, I mean, it's such a pleasure to be able to talk about the experiences that both you and I had in our former agency, how we're taking those experiences and leveraging those into the private market, um, hopefully for the, uh, for the betterment of, of us all. So uh, thank you again to, uh, to Task Force Radio. Yeah, brother. All right, folks, it's time for us to bounce up on out of here. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show and to get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com.
Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 